Hello, I'm Jason Kreitz, founder and CEO of Assurance Health Data, and I have the distinct pleasure of moderating this panel, the state of data onboarding, data onboarding, interoperability, and trust. These industry leaders and founder CEOs from Komodo Health, Evidation, and Point Click Care have raised nearly $750 million in funding and represent Canada's largest software company. In a moment, I will ask each panelist to introduce themselves. After 18 years at IBM, including creating the federating data model, working extensively with Watson Health and the rest of the precision medicine industry, my father was diagnosed with late-stage cancer. In addition, my nephew had a rare and devastating disease, Lay syndromes. It became my life's work to break down data silos and improve patient trust to allow our scientists to find cures to diseases quickly. I found the lack of a trusted third party and the Facebook approach to data inhibited trust and data sharing at scale. At Assurance Health Data, we are that trusted third party. We bring clinical grade data together to positively impact human health through our work with leading health system diagnostic and pharma clients and organizations like the Personalized Medicine Coalition that executes my nephew's rare disease group, the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. To set the stage for our panelists, I shared a bit about you know, what led to the, the starting of, of my company. And I asked for each of you to provide your name, role, and what personally led to the founding of your companies and why is patient data and trust so important? First, we'll start with Christine, then Arif, and then Dave. Christine? I'm Christine Lemke, the co-founder and co-CEO of Evidation Health. Uh, the story that led to the founding of Evidation Health is twofold. Uh, in my professional life as a startup entrepreneur, looking at analytics data. Uh, in my last company, we were looking at mobile phone data in particular. Some of the brightest minds in the world were looking at a lot of mobile phone data and trying to understand a person's personality and behavior patterns. Fascinating stuff, especially at the scale of 100 million people wandering around with their mobile phones and using it for mobile ad targeting. And after we sold that company, it struck us that there are a lot better uses for that type of analysis and data that could actually be helpful uh, to people in a more meaningful way. So we set our sights on, on healthcare and tried to understand how health was really measured in everyday life. And that was really the founding of the company. On a personal note, I have an autoimmune condition that's very difficult to diagnose, took 10 years to diagnose. And often it's because the symptoms of the disease don't really show up inside the clinic walls as much as they show up uh, and affect my function outside the clinic. And so uh, the mission of our company and you know, the analytic that we, we do on this everyday data is especially personal and meaningful to me. Perfect, uh, Arif? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jason, wonderful to meet you. And Christine, Dave, great to see you on, the, on this panel. I'm Arif Nathu, the CEO and co-founder of Komodo Health. Um, we're an enterprise software company that uses an incredible amount of patient level data to predict um, population health trends and understand costs and outcomes in this country. Um, using our healthcare map, we create uh, incredible uh, amount of software experiences for people to access insights off of the data that help them address the burden of disease. And so our mission as a company is, is to reduce the burden of disease. Um, I came to this by way of medicine, uh, MD by background, spent the first part of my career really thinking about the way that data was being used by providers to make better decisions for patients. 
And what I realized is that um, not only has interoperability been a major issue in healthcare, but trust uh, between payers, insur insurers, providers, and, 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 and life sciences companies. And what, what ends up happening is that the patient gets lost. Uh, the patient has a very confusing journey through um, uh, you know, adult onset rare diseases, just as, as Christine described, and as well for very common conditions, not getting the kind of care that they need. And so we believe a lot of these problems uh, are stem from just the lack of visibility into data at scale across the population uh, to make better and more rational decisions, whether you're a policymaker or you're a part of a private company. And so for us, um, this mission has really been about using data to reduce disease burden. And personally, um, that's what I'm passionate about. Um, I love the intersection between science and clinical care uh, and, and data. And as we've kind of grown over the last seven years as a company, we've developed a, a very strong thesis around how data needs to be more uh, accessible and interoperable to drive uh, value for patients. And that's uh, really where our mission lies. So excited to be here, uh, team, and uh, look forward to talking more about this. Great, Dave. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the panel with all of you and excited to share some insights from, uh, from my perspective anyways, but excited to learn from the others on the panel as well. Uh, I'm Dave Wessinger. I'm the CEO of Point Click Care. I've done just about every job at Point Click Care, but prior to, I guess the, the story to founding Point Click Care was an interesting one. Um, graduated college, I was a computer scientist, I was an engineer, and uh, thought I'd do some, you know, really cool things. And lo and behold, at the time, uh, I got connected. My mother got me into long-term care, of all things. I worked for a provider. I actually worked in a converted residence room, so luckily I had my own washroom. I was, but I was able to see the care that was being provided in front of me and what the, the caregivers struggled with and in the systems that were somewhat lackluster at the time. And so, you know, I joined my brother at the time who was outside of the business and we came together to solve what we thought was a pretty big problem, which is enabling the care providers that didn't sign up to do administration and manage computers and, and all of those things, but really wanted to provide great patient care with good information. And so we decided to go tackle that problem in a very different way than others had in the past. We leveraged the cloud. So obviously I'm aging myself, but that goes back to the 90s. Um, for those of you who are around then. But um, but yeah, we've continued to be on a mission to really disrupt the status quo, connect healthcare, and, and provide better care for all. Perfect. Yeah. And and I was around, you know, when, when this cloud became a new thing. So I, I guess I'm dating myself <laughs> as well on this panel. And for those that, that are watching this. But yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting what the cloud has enabled and what what clouds enabled for us to reframe some of the some of the problems that we're solving from a data perspective and some of the tools. As well as, you know, quite frankly, the, the the use cases that we're able to have, and you know, the the importance of of trust and patient trust, and how we acquire our data, and how we you know you know utilize the data, right? In the the post uh, you know Facebook era, uh, you know, how do we how do we acquire the data and how do we utilize it is is very important. Uh, so you know, Christine, you know, you know. Can you explain a bit about you know your role in your company and the, the interplay between you know patient data trust data and trust in the pharmaceutical development life cycle? We're probably the most on the nose about it. Uh, so all of our data comes in a patient mediated way, and so what we mean by that is uh, we start with the the person or the individual. Uh, we get their full consent. Uh, we consent in a very specific set of data that are all permissioned in by that particular person. And that's everything from might be Fitbit data or an Apple Watch data or Garmin data, et cetera, or it could be a clinical grade wearable device or medical device. 
uh, we combine it with, again, patients permissioned health data. So pulling out someone's EMR, if appropriate, in some cases their script data or payer claim data, et cetera. Uh, and we combine it all together at that individual level with their full visibility and permission for every piece of data that we collect, collate, uh, and analyze. Um, and we do it on a use case basis. So uh, it's kind of annoying for some people, I'm sure, but we keep asking them permission, you know, over and over again, depending on the use case. So we're probably the most on the nose. And part of the reason, you know, is because uh, we believe there's a lot of power in fully resolving all the data, the constellation of data around that single individual, um, especially when it's taking into account like their daily life patterns. Uh, and we also think that uh, in order to understand what's going on in their daily life, that sensor data tends to be really noisy, really disruptive, uh, and without really being able to dip back in and ask people clarifying questions about the patterns we're seeing, the data can become useless uh, when you know it's combined on the back end in sort of a more um, in, a, in a different way, in a less resolved way. Uh, so it we're, we're the most on the nose about it, um, and we we do like our model. Uh, we think it's powerful because when people have this trust in the system, when they're you know, they know that I'm going to come back and ask for permission again. They know exactly what data is being used for why, what it's not being used for. They're more likely to give you even more details uh, than, than you might initially imagine. And that extra detail makes all the difference in the world for tuning an algorithm to really understand, you know, how are things going in their everyday life. Yeah, and what, what's interesting about that too, Christine, is you know the the market's spoken as well. I mean, if you if you look at the acquisition of of Citizen, you know, Anil is the mm -hmm. founder over there, you know, a fairly large you know acquisition price for for that company, and you know they they have a similar model where they view uh, you know the, the patient consent and the trust is 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 key, but also as a you know data practitioner, you know, utilizing the 21st Century Cures Act to get consent directly from the patient allows us to get a much richer data set where, you know, that the patient has control, uh, but they, they also provide consent for, for folks like yourself to get some really rich data sets, uh, which, which is really key. So RF, uh, you know, what, you know, your software development company, right? So, which is, you know, I, I like that approach. Uh, and also, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, your algorithms that, that you guys tiled, what, what can it tell us about the quality of care and the impact of ACOs, accountable care organizations, and how patient yeah. does patient and, and trust enables this? Yeah, no, I, so it's it's great to have you and Christine on this call because you both represent the new guard of companies that are doing first party consented data to actually bring that to the consciousness of the old school third party world, which is where we operate. So Komodo has for years um, worked under, you know, the, the notion of, you know, as we, we work with large de-identified data sets, we can suss out patterns in those data that allow us to get better. At, at care. And so you take, um, and the example where we started was adult onset rare diseases, many times a provider will see a case once in their lifetime, maybe two or three times in their lifetime for an ultra rare disease. And um, they don't have all of the information on the history on those patients that allows them to better uh, identify the cues that would enable them to bring the right diagnostic to the patient. So we see a lot of these moments of truth where patients uh, lack sort of access to in, in the right types of diagnostics to identify 
uh, the right disease. And this is where third-party data helps. And so what we think about in the world is like, if we look at a population level, we try to understand the dynamics at, across the, the US, for example, or Canada, we want to understand where that potential rare disease is lurking. Um, which parts of the country it's in, which types of patients it's in. And then when we think about applying those algorithms, how do we bring that down to the institution? How do we bring that down to the individual? That's where we spend a lot of time through our partnerships, uh, helping organizations figure out how to utilize this, you know, kind of incredibly rich de-identified data, but then apply it to cases where we have first party consents that the patient can ultimately benefit. And so what we spend a lot of time doing is operating at the margin between those two worlds. And we think the world is shifting. And uh, one of the most incredible observations is that patients now at scale through their, you know, mobile devices and computers can actually do this. And so the implication for, for ACOs is massive, right? I mean, right now we focused on kind of the low hanging fruit categories, easy ones, to kind of build a value-based contract around, create accountability around. But we see so many areas where, you know, we don't have the longitudinality uh, embedded in the framework for, for that patient. Either the person, you know, is not visible um, to the institution over a long period of time, or the risk that the ACO owns is not longitudinal enough. And so I think the systems, as they continue to shift, and as we see value-based contracting emerge and, and sort of evolve over time, and as risk pools sort of continue to evolve over time, we're going to see a big shift there. And so I would argue that mo many of our kind of observations on the provider side is that we're still in massively early days and everyone's still optimizing around the margin and not really thinking deeply about this, you know, the visibility on that patient on a 10-year journey, a 15-year journey. Um, and I think that's really where when, we, when, when I look at Dave's business and that kind of long-term care and thinking about how do we care for our population chronic disease in the longer term, there's still a massive way to go to, to link these two worlds, this first party world and this third party world together. So that's um, where I think the, the need is. And that's where I see like a lot of players in the ecosystem really trying to figure out solutions to, to make that happen. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I like the way that you put it, the interplay between these two different worlds, right? You know, especially in, in the post 21st century Cures Act, right? Where, you know, there, there's additional data liquidity and, and higher quality, higher, higher, you know, higher quality uh, data for, from our patients. But that third-party world isn't going away, nor should it, right? There's a lot of great solutions that have been developed and some, obviously some great work that, that you and others are doing in this space. So, so thank you. Uh, Dave, you know, speaking of, of older adults and, you know, and, and long-term care facilities, which is, I actually wasn't one of them. That was a strike from above there, but yeah, no, it wasn't a joke like that. But uh, anyway, yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, what what is your view on enabling older adults to stay, you know, stay in their home for a longer period of time before they transition to long-term care facilities? And then just yeah, overall right. within the ecosystem, you know, how how that enables you know re reduction in costs and you know improvement in, in just patient lives. Yeah, I think if if you don't mind, I'll start. Uh, I wouldn't mind continuing on the discussion on the on the trust side. Yes, absolutely. Different in our space, um, I appreciate referring to me as an older adult. I am. I think that. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I, I will lean into the second question as well. The um, I think what's interesting about the, it, I mean, I'm a little pragmatic, and I know there's you know where we think we want to be and where we aspire to be is very different than where we are today, and we have to think about both of those things. I think there is a, an interesting issue from within providers today in terms of, it's not even about the patient per se, 
The reality is in sharing data, they're one of many. Um, and in our business, generally, they consent on moving. And so it's okay, it's up to the provider what they do and don't want to share on their behalf in an, on, uh, in a, uh, in an aggregated way. And, and, uh, and so when you get to a point where you have payers, you have ACOs, you have a health system, you have anybody that bears risk looking to where is my patient, how are they doing, and how do I intervene is largely the three questions I ask. The first one is a much bigger question you could possibly imagine. So, you know, and I would say those are kind of the steps on the way to better care and, and better uh, connectivity across. But the issue we're finding is trust is a huge issue. So data aside, if I share this with my partner, are they going to use it? Are they going to use it against me? Right. And I think that's kind of the number one concern. And, and it shouldn't be. Um, transparency, you know, sharing is caring. Transparency is like, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, but the reality is it's not happening at the level you might think, and there's a lot of resistance to do it because largely it is, it tends to be used against them. And, and I would say those that have the money and, and bear risk tend, tend to have more money, tend to have more resources, can understand the data better and use it to position rates, reimbursement and things that will affect how they perform over time. And so you really have to have a good trusted relationship with your partners before you can enable that trust of sharing data. And so that's kind of, I know that sounds, uh, less sexy, but that's the reality. Um, and that's something we're fighting through across kind of out of hospital across the board. So uh, that said, though, uh, I think if, if you're asking me one question, or if you were to say, um, the next time I hear somebody say, I'd like to go live in a nursing home might be the first time I hear it. And so the reality is people do want to move home, uh, want to stay home. And in some cases, the, the nursing home or the, the SNF, as we would call it, is their home. But largely, they want to be supported where they want to live, and, and technologies are moving to support that. I think there are challenges there as well, and I think what happens is when you're within four walls, it becomes very easy to share data and provide collaborative care. Once you go outside of those walls, the farther you get away from kind of congregated housing, if you will, it becomes a very challenging model to be able to collect and share data to really help that patient live a better quality of life. Right. Forget about the reimbursement and kind of the cost side, but I think ultimately getting this data, understanding the patient allows us to get better best practice in place to drive better health outcomes for the individual. And ultimately it achieves the better quality for the individual at a much lower cost. And those are the things that we're obviously looking for, but being out of bringing that technology together adds another element to the problem of how do we, how do we really help the individual uh, who sometimes doesn't have, you know, I think about charging my Apple watch at night, you know, some aren't really in a position where it's like, what do you mean I have to charge this? Well, how come this doesn't work? Like technology seems very simple for some of us, but when you get into the geriatric space, uh, it becomes a very different problem set. And that's where Christina, I think some of the solutions you talk about could be very helpful. And Christina, I think that's a perfect segue, you know, from, from Dave, a perfect pass to you. I mean, do you have any thoughts based upon what Dave said and some of the work that that your corporation is doing in this space? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that um, there are definite particular challenges with different demographic categories um, or different types of people. Uh, you know, older, older folks, it's true. They often take a little bit more instruction and handholding to get the tech up and running. And it's so frustrating even, you know, trying to do that remotely we've we've had to learn a lot of tricks to be able to get somebody to even understand what their Wi-Fi, how to connect their, you know, how to connect their phone to their Wi-Fi and then their watch to their phone, et cetera. But I will say once it's set up and running, uh, the older population where we've done studies loves it. 
um, absolutely loves it once they're going. And they're some of the most enthusiastic participants in, in research, partially because they, I think, really like that they understand the tech after they've been through pretty extensive setup training. Uh, and part, part of it, the other part of it, I think, is the insight that they get in return. So um, I, I think the older demographic, there's um, it's it's a very common thought uh, when we got even when we got started we looked at some of our uh, work in cognitive decline in older populations we're running uh, the you know we're we're sort of the backbone of the Heartline study JJ and Apple's Heartline study which targets you know 65 and older um, folks who are on medic or sort of uh, original uh, Medicare and everybody was daunted at the onset of those studies. And we're thrilled when um, you know we we sort of disprove some of the critics in many ways that folks in that category wouldn't use these things. And in fact, they embrace them with a plum um, and are some of the most uh, loyal participants. You know, in these studies, filling out every single PRO, you know, connecting all their data. And I mean, we talk a lot about data sharing. It's still not easy. The Blue button, the you know blue button program in the United States for to access Medicare data is hard. <laughs> we, you know, you have to find your card, you have to enter all your right data, you have to know which number is which number on that card to get all the way through the process is daunting. Uh, but um, we've done it with a record number of you know sixty five and elders, you know, in a, across almost uh, almost fifty percent of our studies. So yeah, and so. You know, that, that's interesting for me, right? Cognitive decline is scary, right? You know, there, you know, Alzheimer's runs in my family and it, it's, it's scary, right? And, you know, in order for you to get trust from that patient, I find that very intriguing for them to participate. I mean, there, you know, Apple clearly is a leader in, in privacy and trust in, in our industry. And I've heard you speak about that. I mean, can you, can you talk a little bit about you know, for such a scary area, you know, what are some of the things that, that you're doing to enable that trust? And what are some lessons learned for you know, some of our, our viewers of this, of this conference that they can take away? This is why Evidation puts such emphasis on, you know, the first question that you asked about privacy and consent. Um, this is exactly why. Uh, if you are becoming cognitively declined uh, or affected in some ways, uh, you know, we want to make sure that that characterization of you is kept under close guard uh, and is controlled completely by you and not shared with anyone for any purpose uh, that could, you know, uh, be used, you know, without your permission, as Dave mentioned, against you. Uh, imagine a world where we could tell just from voice and speech, somebody could just watch this video and watch a video of me five years ago and go, oh, Christine is, you know, she's entering her latter years um, and then use that information against me for you know insurance purposes for employment purposes for you know anything it gets to be a pretty scary world uh, and and so evidation spends a lot of time thinking through the double-edged sword of this technology yes we can characterize people's cognitive decline in the earliest stages of it so that you can get the help you need to potentially enjoy many more quality of quality of life years later as the disease progresses, we can hopefully find medicine for you or find ways to stall the cognitive decline in the earliest stages. But we have to think through the ramifications of that should it fall into the wrong hands, so to speak. And so we encrypt everything, 
We only do things based on your permission. We try to destroy a lot of data, but first and foremost is having a company whose primary stance in the world is about privacy and consent so that people do trust something in order to forward this important research. Because we do think it's important. We do think it's critical to understand these things. Yeah, and I'll, I'll leave a, a bit of a pause if you know Dave or RF have, have anything to add with your particular businesses in this area. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with that sentiment. I mean, the challenge is one of a user experience. So imagine like every time you go to a website, you get a different consent form for managing your cookies. You click on that, you look at it, it's confusing. I don't know what I'm consenting to, not consenting to. And so Christine's point is right on. Like, I think one of the biggest challenges of the migration of this, like kind of, we work in a third-party de-identified world, which is privacy protected, meaning like we don't re-identify patients. But on the other side of it, we see less of the cues we need in order to build a better predictor for how we should help the patient to the first party world you're describing comes down to this big barrier from the consumer to understand what they're consenting to, to ensure that their data, they trust the party, exactly what Christina, they trust the party, but then they'd have an explainable, easy way to consent into projects, into uses of their data that they believe are appropriate either for research or for their own personal benefit. And depending on how that process goes, you're going to see a proliferation of actors across the spectrum, just like you do when you go to any website today, some of whom give these really funny blanket consents and their data is used kind of, yeah, I don't know how, like, you know, one of these newspapers is using my personal data compared to a site which is incredibly specific about use cases and consents me every time I hit the site. I think we're going to see that emerging the same way in healthcare where there are going to be actors across the spectrum. And so how do we start differentiating between different ways that my data can be used? Um, do we go to trusted third parties like Apple who are providing that, but you know, maybe not collecting data that's rich enough for me to use? Do we trade that off with institutions that you know, may have phenomenal privacy regimes, but not a lot of visibility because they just can't link that in to improve the way that they're guiding me. And so this to me is really where a lot of the, um, my observations that a lot of the battleground over the next few years as we kind of move into the, like from the early to the middle innings on the patient consent world are, is, is really gonna come to bear. And I, I think in our observation, you know, one of the best um, ways that we can build that trust is through organizations that are really focused on that trust and then use that in a way that's consistent with the principles of data sharing. And so I, I really like that kind of interplay between the two, but I'm so fascinated, uh, as many of all of us are, like how that will evolve. And I'd encourage folks who are listening, who are working on different problems to think about, you know, this, um, this changing of the guard almost, you know, in a world where we are only using de-identified data to, we can only get so far. Um, we can only get so far in fidelity. We can only get so far in quality. We can only get so far in making it applicable to you as an individual to the kind of first party world where we can actually do a lot to meaningfully improve your life. We're sharing that data can make a difference to you as well as to public health. So I think it's, it's there's a lot to see here, but I do believe that, that the solutions on the margin that make consent easy, that bring it to patients easier, that make the data more liquid, all of these things are going to be what it takes to bring this to life. Yeah, I'll, Dave, go ahead. Yeah, I'll add to that, Jason. I, you know, a little bit different. I think, you know, as, as you talk about consent and in, in individual consent is, is a little bit different. 
uh, in long-term care. And so usually there's a responsible party that will, will manage that and, and ultimately it does lean on the provider a little bit. What's interesting about, you know, one of the, again, talking about kind of the, the, the foundation is having really good standardized records that we can understand, right? Which leads to understanding that data better, those observations that drive outcomes depending on the condition of the individual, the, the, um, the conditions. And, and, you know, being able to pull those together and understand what I would, you know, we refer to as best practice, but for an 84-year-old with these comorbidities, what does it look like? What is the outcome? And how do we have as you look in long-term care, one of the problems we've tried to solve is there's a there's a high variance in cost of care, right? For the same people. And the the clinical pathways are very different across the continuum across the country. And there's no need in, you know, everyone, you go back 15 years, clinicians would fight for their own pathways. Today they're not fighting. Like, what's the best way in leveraging data? We can really play those out. We can, we can back test the models, we can do a variety of things and really leverage machines to do the things that people just can't do. And so you can't do that without consent and trust. And I even, you know, your your comment, Jason, about Alzheimer's, you know, we're doing a study with big pharma and helping them with millions of data records to help them understand if they can be more predictive or understand. You know, there is, are there a set of patients they can they can leverage for clinical trials? And so it's interesting when you bring volumes of data that are de-identified, the value that I think will help here is if patients and individuals understand that contributing will actually end up in benefiting them as an individual or others like them. And so I think if, if there's that kind of mindset, I think it can help accelerate the movement to, to trust in, in data sharing, which ultimately will allow us to be smarter, better, and provide cheaper, better healthcare. It's really the outcome I think we're all looking for. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, with some of the, the work that we do, and I do personally with some of the rare disease, you know, patients where, you know, they have an issue of, of a lack of a large enough, you know, collection of patients where some, some of these diseases, they haven't, haven't even been able to do a natural history study. But I'm seeing some of the best of breed organizations, what they're doing is utilizing trust, but also pulling the patients in, into the system, into, you know, collaboration with pharma. In a, in a trusted model to you know do that natural history study and progress to where we can start doing some clinical trials for some diseases that are underserved as well as you know Christine you mentioned you know a 10-year diagnostic odyssey right which is very common with a lot of a lot of rare diseases and even some some diseases that that aren't rare and you know the, the interplay between the third party and the first party I think is just going to help accelerate that and RF, you know, one of you know some of the things that you were mentioning within privacy law, there's an emergency er, emerging area around loyalty, the duty of loyalty, right? Yeah. So some of us, you know, as leaders in the industry, we're we're going to do that ourselves. And you know, you use not not within the the health data space, just within websites, right? I mean, I, I certain websites that give me the choice on what they share. I've got a better view of them. And I think we're going to see that in our industry, I think is partly why you, you know, illustrated that example, but also you, you came off a of mute. So I, I assume you have some, some comments to make as well. No, I, I think this is where, and so this is exactly where Dave is going. It's the combination of these two worlds that, that creates value. So imagine if I'm doing a study and I can link to kind of patient histories in a de-identified basis that are longitudinal payer derived, 
I'm going to want to do that. Uh, why? For the purpose of the study, I'm going to get a better understanding of um, better, a better performance of my model. So this is where these two worlds come to bear. Like we've seen a lot more re recently, we've done a lot more studies where we'll bring first party consented data in, we'll move it to a de-identified environment, we'll link it to a lot of history on those patients, and we will get a better performance on the model than if we were just using the first party data. And this is to your point where ultimately this is a little bit different than serving an advertisement. This is about your health and the contribution you can make to public health. And so whether data is consented by a provider or by a payer or any actor in the healthcare system that has rights to that, we do think that bringing the like kind of richness of the kind of say third party world to enhancing the first party world is is in our mind where you get the best of both um, and is where actually innovation is being pushed. So we're starting to see an incredible amount of sensor data, as Christine was referring to, we're seeing an incredible amount of lab data that's not bypassing the EHR and just make, being made available directly to the patient through an app and, you know, is, is starting to be able to be linked kind of essentially to an administrative backbone. And when you start to do that at scale, when you start to do that at population levels, you can really um, improve the fidelity of a cohort that you're studying. You can create a better control cohort. You can perform research at a level that um, we haven't had access to in the last 20 years. And I think that's frankly the best benefit we can create for patients, which is creating those insights, improving those models, training them at, at, at a large scale, and then finding ways to deploy them in a trust-based way to improving the patient's outcome. So I think we're kind of in that, in that place and what Dave was referring to, that connection between the two where we're bringing great consented provider data to kind of enhancing what we're seeing from the, from the first party. I think that's that's where um, some of the magic's happening right now. And I think, you know, we're getting a lot of benefit as, a, as an organization as, as well as a society. Perfect. So, you know, I'm enjoying this, this trust piece, but, you know, for, for fairness of the viewers that have come for interoperability, we ought to spend a little bit of time on that. Uh, and, and, you know, Christine, given the work that, that your firm does, I'm sure that you may have a, a few battle scars and a few lessons learned, but you know I'll open up to to anyone if they have any any particular comments on on interop and you know some lessons learned and you know kind of what you you see in the, in the future. I mean, it's a mess. I I don't know that there's <laughs> it, it. Look, it's a mess, but uh, you know the data sharing rules have made things a little bit better, but it's still a mess. Let's let me give you a stark example of this. Epic has uh, an API, <laughs> so a developer can apply to Epic's API program, get access. That doesn't mean you actually have access to any Epic data. Uh, you kind of go hospital by hospital um, to get access to the data. Further, uh, the CIOs of those hospitals can say, hmm, we'll just subselect, you know, downselect like a subsection of that data to make it available through that API. And so you never get the real complete record of that individual in the way that it's advertised, in the way that sort of, you know, Epic and some of the provider systems advertise. So uh, it's remarkable that we have some APIs from Epic and Cerner, at least in the United States. Um, it's remarkable that there are new ONC data sharing rules. It's amazing. These are amazing initial steps, but there's still some distance to go to get patient access you know, to the full and complete record of an individual in that system. And for, for a lot of reasons, uh, but um, it's, just, it's just not there yet. Uh, system generated data is not perfect either. Uh, you know, somebody coding things in Arizona is different than somebody coding things in Arizona at the room next door. 
uh, everybody, you know, coding, um, medical coding seems to be an art form in the United States. Um, so system generated data is not all that pretty either. And then you, you know, try to pull that out and merge it with other system data and it gets really, really messy. And I'm sure, you know, Arv has dealt with this, you know, in, in his life too, that it's, everything is kind of a, a bit of a nightmare. Um, so I guess the short of it is things are getting better. Remarkable changes in the system have allowed for way more patient access to data than existed even a year or two ago. Uh, but there's still a ways to go in getting the complete record. And then there's a lot of work to be done in harmonizing that data and making it actually useful for research purposes. So funny you say that, Christine, because I feel like the first issue in my mind is a trust issue. Like if you're Epic, like what's your incentive to give, you know, the patient everything they could possibly want? Oh, you're going to force them to log in. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to go down the authentication, the like newer authentication way. They say, I'm going to force you to log in and then I'm going to force everyone to consent. And then I'm going to let the hospital determine what schema they want to use. And so to your point, you're getting a shard. And in my mind, that's a protection of business model issue, not a like, interoperability one. Could we make the entire set of features across all EHRs available on fire today for the whole world to use for research? Of course we could. But if your business model is predicated on either running the same lab test 10 times with 10 different providers or, you know, ensuring that you have control of your own pipes, like there's very little incentive. And so I'm like, I sit there thinking like, is that an interoperability issue or is that just a you know, a trust issue in the system to kind of protect a legacy business model. I, I kind of think it's the latter, you know, like I, I'm really shocked that we kind of paint these as interoperability problems, but they're not like we have great standards. And to your point, there's an incredible amount of unstructured data that sticks that we have to do work on and AI and ML has come a long way. We are getting better at it. It still requires experts, like deep clinical experts, deep data scientists, like on your team, Christine, to like work on that. So I, I think that's a problem that's meaningful, but we, we paint a lot of this as interoperability. And I think fundamentally, uh, people don't want to share because, you know, it protects the legacy way of working. And I, I wonder what you guys think about that, but I feel like that's, that's been my observation. And, you know, as someone who like tries to aggregate all this data and use it. I, perspective, perspective. So let me share another one. I totally appreciate where you're coming from. And, and I think where, where everyone is, is inclined to do the right thing, that makes a lot of sense. But I can tell you being on the other side as, you know, call us an EHR vendor, if you like, um, there is that sense of we worked really hard to build a business and create um, solutions for our customers. And, and there's an opportunity for us to and for that matter, if we open things up for others to create an economic model on top of that, that is really beneficial to them. And it's like, gosh, we should participate in that. So the reality of that is as much as there's an economic model between partners that should make sense versus, hey, just open up. Let me take all of this data from your providers who should benefit from it through you and make a huge uh, growing software business with large, you know, lots of value. But, but the reality is, yeah, there are some tougher conversations that aren't just about share your data. Um, and it's not our data. It's not our provider's data. It's the patient's data. And that gets even harder. So um, I'll share with you a couple of examples that I think are, are, are positive ones and, and could move faster. In um, lessons learned, Jason, you asked for that. Um, we, as we grew from a small business to a large business, roughly 70% of all the skilled nursing facilities in the U.S. are on our platform. Not that dissimilar in certain geographies in Canada. Um, and so we, we have an opportunity being on the cloud to plug in once and everybody gets, right? A very unique situation that a lot of legacy software companies don't have. 
anybody who's been around recently just assumes that's the case, but that's not the case. Um, so we have an ability to connect in all of our providers into call it care quality or general network for visibility and transparency to improve interoperability. Getting an MSA that is appropriate for data rights today that will help our providers, you know, for the future and what they, I mean, that is like, okay, get five legal people involved and, you know, 90 days later, you have another conversation a year later, you might have an MSA and you have to like, it is a lot of work to just go through the T's and C's um, and understanding what you're doing. And are you going to monetize it? Are you not? What does that mean to me? What are my risks? It seems like a small amount of work. Had we thought about that 20 years ago, it would have been a little bit more interesting. Um, but we have to we have to work through that. And so there's a bit of a lesson learned, but I will tell you, when we get to putting the patient in the center, the individual and say, this is about closing the gaps in care. And anybody who moves between settings doesn't even have to be physically, but largely it's physically, that's where bad things happen. 50% of the readmissions of hospital happen in the first 72 hours, largely related to medications. Medications are available in the hospital. Meaningful use said, hey, you have to do a certain amount of your referrals. Well, guess what? They don't close out the record before they leave. Six, seven days later, they get the information they want to have. Meaningful use to accept it, if you will. And it's incomplete and they miss what they needed to get at time of admission. So timeliness is a critical component to interoperability, not just interoperability, but the right information at the right time. And if you're not closing out the record at the hospital because of how you want to bill and you don't feel comfortable and somebody needs to review it, well, you're leaving the care providers on the other side in limbo. We can solve the MedRec problem for every provider in the nation effectively overnight just by saying, connect in, sign the MSA. You have to agree to be transparent. Let others come in and look at patient data and vice versa. Um, and we can give you the information. To, if, if you've ever been involved in senior care and somebody moves through and you see the chart in their chest and God forbid it happens to you know not arrive with them or the advanced directives blow off, those are the kind of things that seem like they're very straightforward and we don't do that today. Well, guess what we do? And it's problematic for the individual. And so interoperability to me, there's again, some baby steps, but there are problems we can solve today just by saying, great, let's sign up, let's move and instantly believe me when you talk about the number one issue in healthcare today is staffing. The people that have to do this job, they want to operate at the highest level of their license, but they're doing administrative work 90% of the time. If we can kind of create, you know, cleaner pathways to data and really have what's right for the patient and their information flow with them between settings, we'll dramatically improve care and improve the value and the satisfaction that our caregivers have in the space, which is another kind of problem of not having the right information, making bad decisions with limited data. So um, never mind that it's bad for the individual. So those are things that are moving. The solutions are there, but moving a nation there is challenge. We need some help. And I can talk more about that. Perfect. Well, we have limited time left. So, you know, part of this points to, to problems that maybe we're not able to solve. So literally one sentence from each of you, if our policymakers could solve one thing, what would it be? You stumped us. Wow. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll do it from my perspective. Uh, I think we need to get smarter about regulating the use of data um, to make sure that these nightmare scenarios I've described uh, stay scenarios um, uh, and not reality. I think we need to double down on information sharing regimes that we've already started to put in place and continue to um, reduce the barriers for, for companies to share uh, data that benefit the patient. 
Yeah, it's it's tough to make a blanket statement, but I think you know policy is used where we can break down silos that generally where where uh, where the private sector can't move, and so there are use yeah. cases for that. It's it's tough to really give you a blanket do X, Y, or Z, but I don't think it's all private sector will solve most of the problems if you just help us break down some of the barriers that generally are hard for us to do independently. And there's a variety of examples there, but. Perfect. Well, hey, we're, we're at the end of our time. So, you know, Christine, Arif, and Dave, thank you very much for participating in this panel. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you all. Take, Take care, care, everyone. Great.